Hey everybody, you're very welcome to this week's episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman Doctor, and it's a great pleasure to get to chat to you again. It's been a while since we were on uh, and since we've released an episode. Uh, I want to thank Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, for being our last guest. And we got a great response to Minister O'Gorman's episode and gave us a great insight into the role of, of government decisions and, uh, and I suppose where children are considered in the landscape of political decision making so thank you to him uh we've between people being on holidays and breaks and things like that it's been a few weeks since we've released an episode so we've got a lot of questions that have come in and uh without further ado i'm going to crack on to that i hope everyone has been enjoying our opening up experience over the last number of weeks and the good weather maybe even gotten a staycation or some bit of a break the schools of course have closed now and we have summer camps and everything else that are going on. So I'm hoping things are good for people out there. However, we do have worries about fourth surges and increasing numbers, but hopefully our vaccination program will win out in the race against the numbers. Uh, and it sounds like it's doing its part and, and we seem to have experienced a great improvement in that in recent times. So things are are hopeful, but again, I think there's a caution around you know, I, again, the, the murmurings of possible school closures, etc., and the unpredictability of all of that. So I just hope people are doing okay. Um, and for anyone who's gotten in touch with the website or with the podcast uh, through email, uh, thank you very much. And we've gotten some great questions to get through today. And today I'm joined by someone who's familiar to you all. It's Alison Kaspersky. Alison has been a guest twice on the podcast. She's a a mother of one, uh, originally from uh, the USA, uh, from California, and now living in Dublin. Uh, and she's a, a colleague and friend of mine. Um, so, Alison, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Coleman. I'm happy to be back. So, yeah. How are you doing? Enjoying the nice weather and getting the breaks? Or has it been? It's been good. Yeah. Mm. I was, you know, talking about uh, the new normal again with different surges and how we're going to be handling going back to school. We had our first experience. We had a camp all set up. But, of course, we got the call saying... Camp's got COVID, so camp is off this week. Right. So again, a bit of rescheduling, but I think that's just going to be part of it. We're mm. going to have to start to to plan for for what's going to happen with the school year. You know, mm. be prepared for you know groups being affected by this, and so how we're going to handle that. Mm. And again, I think there is that kind of uncertainty that even though there is a return to normal, yes. there is uh, the worries of, and again, I think conscious of recent news stories about, you know, 12 to 15 year olds being eligible for vaccines and lots of parents out there with understandable questions around whether that's a, a thing that's needed when we think about, you know, the incidence of, of COVID and the impact of it isn't quite as the same as in children as it is in adults. But I suppose from the point of view of maybe having more children vaccinated maybe means that we'll have less of those disruptions and things right. like that. So again, a lot of decision-making, I think, for parents out there at the moment yeah. and understandable caution. Uh, I think we all would tend to be uh, a little bit more risky with our own bodies than those of our children, and that's understandable. Um, sure. But uh, from the point of view of, you know, we are still living in a season of unpredictability and closures and and COVIDs and contact tracing and all that sort of stuff is still going to be, I think, a feature of our return in autumn. Um, and, I, and I think some of the, the um, questions we've gotten in are are kind of typical summer questions where the, the, the return in September is on the 
at the forefront of people's minds who maybe had a difficult run in. And it's important to, to say, state that children have had uh, a very disrupted last two years. And so children who feel a little bit unready or not able or unprepared for the return to school, the transition to secondary school, beginning primary school. It's understandable. I was only recently looking at the stats around my own children. And from January 2020, they would have had, supposed to have had 77 weeks, I think, in terms of that. Mm -hmm. And they had uh, 29 weeks of face-to-face contact. So that's phenomenal disruption. Again, not through anyone's fault. And again, there was the distance learning and homeschooling and everything else that went into it. But I think children are encountering this September with a less than ideal level of preparation. And I think we have to take that into consideration for those who are starting first year, those who are starting primary school, and even those who are moving through the primary school years, the disruption has, I've said it before, I think we can't do a dipstick to see where people are at until we get to maybe Halloween. And if we don't have a fourth surge, because I think we're all still calibrating or recalibrating at the moment. And so it's not a very reliable point in time to see how we're all doing. No, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And just, yeah, the whole disruption again to the, to the, to the kids, but also for the parents, you Mm -hmm. know, I think we have to uh, not lessen that, that, you know, the kids are definitely being disrupted, but you know, our, our routine and our flow with our kids is, has been challenged and disrupted. And, you know, even with, you know, my daughter was sick and I knew it was, you know, croup. I knew what it was and this is what it was. And I trust my instincts and that's what it was. But now it's like this other thing of like, well, you still have to go get a test. Mm-hmm. So I find this, this whole thing a bit challenging now, you know, when you're a new parent, you don't know anything and you're figuring out, you're not using, used to trusting your instincts. And then finally you get into this rhythm of, you know, I can, understand my child I know all her rhythms and everything Mm. that's happening to her Um, especially when she's sick you know you know what it is okay let's do this let's do this routine but now it's kind of like no you have to stop Mm. and and second guess yourself and now go go do this other step and I find that that's that's a disruption and that's and that's hard and we have to kind of get back to as parents just just trust our gut and trust ourselves and and just go with the flow a bit more and and understand that these are different things that are going to change our our systems and rhythms with our kids. I think that's a brilliant point because I think rhythm, traction and momentum mm-hmm. are so important. It's mm-hmm. not the same having kind of six weeks with gaps in the middle versus a six week continuous yeah. run. Right. We need to get momentum, traction. It's such an important part of, and I know Joe Schmidt, the, the rugby coach used to talk about it all the time, but yeah. it's almost, it has to become almost automatic yeah. uh, and you can't get that automatism without. And, and, and in, in fairness to our children, the schooling piece has been punctuated by Easter holidays, mm-hmm. by weeks off, by, again, maybe being a close contact and having a two-week break. Or yeah. And as parents, we haven't had the opportunity to establish rhythm and momentum either. Exactly. Uh, and so I think, yes, absolutely, we need to be compassionate to that mm-hmm. as parents, that in actual fact, this has not been in any way a, a, a typical parenting experience yeah. and, and and the absence of rhythm and momentum and traction and again in therapy you can see that you know in terms of when you're starting a relationship and building rapport with somebody you need to have that consistency when there's long punctuation and breaks it's almost impossible because you feel like you're starting each time and, uh, and that's what it can feel like sometimes parenting yeah you're you think you've got it you think okay I, I know why we're reacting this way I know this is this is why she's feeling this way and then you're like 
Oh, mm. maybe not. <laughs> yeah, and again, it's oftentimes just when you find yourself getting on top of things that these yeah, yeah. disruptions happen. So, yes. uh, so tell us what questions have come in and and where will we start? Okay, we're going to start here. It says, as the dad of a 14-year-old daughter, many of the points you've made resonated with me and my wife. Um, so the issues we have are more acute and I hope you can give me some advice. My daughter has told us she has suicide ideation and talks about killing herself every day. Initially, we thought this was just her way of shocking us, but it has been ongoing for some time. She has recently shared these thoughts with some of her key school teachers. Okay, so he gives a backstory. So the behavior started around uh, when she had puberty 15 months ago and again accepted that this was a natural result. However, some youth leaders at a club she attended noticed it too and felt she could benefit from counseling, which they provided. She did not really engage with it uh, other than uh, token participation. We then felt another option might be CBT counseling, which again, she didn't really engage with. Um, we've spoken at length to the GP who recommends fresh air and exercise. And when we push her, she advised us to see uh, a psychologist to get her assessed, which we did. But our daughter admitted uh, she underplayed how she was feeling, which in turn meant we didn't really get a clear assessment, which was high anxiety leading to low mood. The GP's position is she does not want to prescribe medication. Uh, and if we're very worried to attend A&E in Temple Street or go to St. Pat's, which thinks is only 18 and above. Now that the school is aware, uh, they have been very supportive and have set up sessions with a guidance counselor. We have also had an assessment from Pieta in the last 24 hours, and they have said that she is at a medium level. There's no timeline for when the counseling will start. Her guidance counselor advised us that she has no joy in her, and in her limited experience, she felt that she uh, should have some level of medication. We've also linked with Jigsaw and have been given a date in August with them. We have heard not very good things about CAMS and are reluctant to engage our energies with them unless absolutely necessary. Okay, this is, there's a number of strands to this question. The first mm -hmm. one being suicidal ideation. Um, and how do we understand that? How do we react to it? How do we respond to it? There's not a generic explanation for it all being the same. There's some degree of considering our own mortality that is quite normative you know from the okay. point of view of I can remember being a teenager myself and if I'd row with my parents is kind of this you'll be sorry when I'm gone sort of thing it's very black know. and white yeah. very and, all or nothing and there might be an image of you go up in your room imagining the funeral and everyone crying and feeling so sorry for being so mean to you mm -hmm. and whatever it means so that degree of kind of wonderingment and ponderingment is fairly normative from the point of view of, of that the, the the wish to die can be something that is either that i'm intrigued by what death brings or i am unhappy with what life is and there are two different motivations so one is a kind of a mm. could be a morbid interest in something another could be an unbearable or intolerableness to it you know i want to not continue to feel the way that i feel at the moment is different to i want to not be alive so am i seeing this as a way of ending the pain mm -hmm. or am i seeing this as a means of not being on the planet anymore and so the complexity around any sort of suicidal ideation deserves a great deal of exploration and to try and decipher out those things and and when we consider that as a professional we're considering risk what is the risk to this person 
And the risk is not always just about the level of intent. It's also about the level of support. So you might find some young person who maybe you, you would surmise that it's a six out of 10 risk of maybe taking their own lives. Or, but when you see their support systems at home, maybe they haven't got very attentive parents. Maybe they are alone a lot. So maybe they have access to things. And that would increase the risk, whereas somebody's risk may be an eight out of 10, but their parents are very attentive and will mm. be prepared to maintain a vigil around them until things get better, et cetera. And so, so risk is very much uh, an assessment of the intent, the environment, the purposefulness of it, uh, and the function of, of what they're saying. And there is, of course, an issue where young people will use things like self-harm and suicide in order to get people to listen. And it is we can see it even in referrals you're looking through something when you see self-harm suicide it automatically there's this kind of red light that goes off a red flag and so it becomes um not so much it becomes a priority but the risk level becomes highlighted. something highlighted okay. so children and young people they understand that when they mention things like self-harm or suicide people sit up and listen and mm -hmm. so if they have had many attempts to try and communicate their distress to other people and it hasn't been as effective and this is the thing that that proves to them that people will take heed once this is mentioned. It can be a form of communication. Okay. Now, they, they're, they're, in hindsight of what I've just said, it's, it means it could be anything. And, and it, that's the way it is. Self-harm also could be something that is a gateway behavior to suicidality, but it could be something completely different. Some people who self-harm have no intention of taking their own lives. It's something in the act that is gratifying or it, it physicalizes a mental pain or whatever it might be. And so we make so many assumptions around suicidality, self-harm, et cetera. It's a really complex area and it deserves a degree of assessment. And what this family have done is they've gone to all these various different people yeah. for assessment. So they've gone GP, they seem to have gone to Pieta House, they've gone to psychologists and they're getting different responses from different people, which are, you know, fresh air and, and a walk versus medication yeah. versus therapy. And oftentimes the view of, of mental distress is huge. The huge issue with working in mental health is that there's no x-ray or blood test for mental distress, right? So we can't do a scan and mm -hmm. say your depression level is seven or your anxiety level. We've looked at your bloods right. and your anxiety. So we rely 100% on our own expertise mm -hmm. and 100% on the narration of the story from the other person and the other people. So parents and mm -hmm. child tell us. Which brings us to the second point, which is this girl doesn't engage in rapport. Yeah, right. So she has gone to professionals and minimized how she's felt, mm -hmm. or she hasn't connected with them, or she hasn't trusted them, and it hasn't really. And so if you rely 100% on the story, you only have the material that is spoken about to make your clinical assessment mm -hmm. on whether there's risk here or not whether there's a pathology here or not and when somebody you know the old joke about how many psychotherapists does it take to change a light bulb and the answer is the light bulb has to want to change itself <laughs> is really true because many times our collateral history of the person telling the story or the parent or the sibling or whatever it is those the collection of those stories is your clinical information in the okay. absence of any diagnostic aid yeah. you have to rely on that and so it means that, and I say this with the greatest level of respect, much of what mental health assessment is, is guesswork. Right. You know, and the authenticity of something, the, the truth of something, and the, the intent behind the words, you know, are people over-reporting? Are they under-reporting? There is no definitive means of finding out 
that. It has to be. And that's why risk is so high, because you don't have anything to rely on. So clearly these parents know their child very well. They're very concerned. GP might have one view. Pieta yeah. might have another view. Jigsaw might have another view. It really is. And I would say to you know, trust your gut, but also trust the guidance of other people. Do you know what I mean? So your closeness can be something that gives you a very uh, you know, insightful view into something, but in some ways it can be, you can't see the wood for the trees as well, in the sense mm-hmm. that the closeness can sometimes blur your vision of something, you know, if you're too close to somebody to, yeah. to make that view. So what I'm saying to you here is that they've gone to all these different yeah. people. They've collected all these different, it is an amalgamation of feedback. It is down to them and the child to try and find a means of what's best for them. The difficulty around rapport is that oftentimes it depends on the person and the fit. And it's really, I often, I've gotten so many re- requests recently for young people to come for support or therapy. And I obviously have no space for that. I'm completely overwhelmedly mm-hmm. full and you know, 30 emails a week to that effect. It's really hard to to advise or re-refer somebody to therapy because therapy is such a personal thing. So I would have sent people to therapy and they've come back and said, that was the best experience of my life. That person was amazing. You send someone else to exactly the same person and they say, we just didn't fire, didn't mm-hmm. click, they weren't for mm-hmm. me. So the, the fit of therapy in, is, is very much uh, an important factor in whether it's a success or not. And that is a very subjective experience. So, yeah, I think that's very key because, you know, we're talking about this, this young person going to a GP, going to this, a, a guidance counselor, a youth counselor, you know, th- this person, this child's kind of maybe had to say these things over and mm-hmm. over again. And again, like you said, you know, they've pulled back or they, they haven't felt comfortable. So would you suggest then it's, it's about the parent kind of maybe finding another avenue that the child would be more comfortable in or I think I think it's about picking a lane mm-hmm, and going mm-hmm. with it right? Right, I understand right. that the idea of therapy shopping because we have okay. to do that but the issue around if I go somewhere and let's imagine that the child's experience of one of these professionals was they were dismissed right they didn't okay. think it was serious okay that affects the next professional they talk to so they go back and say well the last person didn't believe me so why are you going to be any different and so there is you we can turn people off psychological intervention by having a bad experience of it or an experience that doesn't go somewhere or the idea of visibility if I don't feel heard if I don't Mm -hmm. feel validated if I feel that I was you know as I say pondered off or or, or, and that would be true with any medical absolutely absolutely but in this instance um we have to keep the door of therapy open because I can go to therapy to see four therapists and feel it doesn't work and the fifth one might be the one that's for me Mm -hmm. and uh, and that's not necessarily just about the therapist it's about the fit Mm -hmm. and so some people will like a very CBT which is cognitive behavioral therapy approach very very practical very skills based very based on on symptom reduction somebody else might want a much more explorative you know going to childhood and finding kind of exploring origins might be a different approach that will be horses for courses that will be you know a personal preference and so there is a bit of, of having to find the right fit but they've done everything that they can they've been around all of those people the the issue the last thing i want to comment is on is on the negative views of cams and i think there is that there, there certainly is that around that cams okay. is uh, uh unresponsive and it's not very effective and okay. uh, not very good CAMS is a completely overwhelmed, under-resourced service, the first okay. thing, right? So I think to get into CAMS is very difficult, but when you get in there, oftentimes the experience is very good. 
if you have what they treat. Okay. okay. So this is the issue. CAMs are very good at core pathology. They're good with perhaps something like anxiety, depression, psychosis, eating disorder. They might not be very good at something with the complexities of ASD or uh, autism spectrum disorder or emotional and behavioral issues, maybe things like trauma, maybe things like uh, behavioral problems. And what happens is we, we oftentimes see a referral coming into CAMS about this person, this child who's out of control. Maybe they're stealing cars or you know whatever it might be. But there's no evidence of a mental health problem there. There's a social issue, there's environmental issues, there's trauma issues, there could be all of the things. And that young person definitely needs help. But maybe CAMS is not the place for them. Mm. However, we don't have a selection of different primary care services where we can send people to. So what happens is everybody goes to CAMS, which means that the waiting lists get really clogged, which means that CAMS end up getting doing things that they don't tend to be specialist in right you know and then it kind of gets clogged so if i'm a and i use this example like if i'm a plumber right and i i'm that's my expertise mm-hmm. and i go to your house to help you with your kitchen or whatever it might be and you say to me coleman would you ever just tile the bathroom for me as well and i go well i'm not a tiler but there's a there's no tilers around and so so i'll try and tie your bathroom but it'll take me twice as long i probably won't be doing a great job of it and then someone else says oh Alison has a tiler. You know, I must get Coleman to do my tiles, right? And before I know it, I'm kind of tiling everybody. But the issues is that my expertise is plumbing and there's a whole list of people waiting for me to come and plumb their house, which is what I'm good at and what I'm able to do. But I've gotten uh, my... But the list is long. The list is long and and I've I've overstretched myself because of demand. Do you know what I mean? And when you're working in Cairns, I've worked there. Very hard. You have somebody with two years on a waiting list and they arrive, but they're not, they don't have something that we're effective with, but turning them away and saying, actually, you need to join that queue over there, which is three hours long or three years long is difficult too. So we'll tend to go, look, we'll see it. We'll do what we can. And in doing that, we clog up the system, et cetera. So there's an infrastructural problem with mental health services in Ireland. There is a resource issue that's huge, but I just really don't feel that us dismissing CAMS as being useless is useful to anyone who's on the waiting list. I'm True. very careful about that mm. because as much as there are issues within it, if I if it's the only place in town that I can get help, I don't it doesn't help me in any way to hear all the bad stories of other people's experiences of it. You know, and like anything, we tend to hear the bad stories more than we hear the good. Uh, and I, I'm fully aware of people who work in cams and who work incredibly hard and work around the clock trying to do their best. But resource wise, infrastructure wise, it is problematic. And so to, to just say to these people, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that it's, I wouldn't rule it out. Right. Okay. If it's if it's right for what your child needs and you get in, you could get a very good service there. But waiting lists and access are a problem. So okay. there's a plethora of difficulties here that are around service design, service availability, you know, and it's always really difficult. We say to people, go talk to somebody, but then we've nobody to talk to. Yeah, mm-hmm. And it is a flaw in, okay. in our mental health service nationally and it is we are under-resourced and it is especially in COVID times where we've seen this massive increase in mental health problems and hugely levels of overwhelmed staff but keep doing what you're doing go for the assessments find the therapy that works best for you but don't underestimate the benefit of rapport that connection the ability for your daughter to trust whoever it is I think the rapport is even more important than the specialty you know whether it's DBT, CBT, psychoanalysis if the relationship 
which I believe to be the vehicle of recovery works, then go with that. You're doing everything you can and you're in the right list. The issues around medication, if it's needed, it should be required. There are lots of children on medication out there who shouldn't be. And there's a lot of children who should be on medication who aren't. So it's not necessarily a one-way system that we have. Again, we hear headlines that children are over-prescribed medication and everyone's drugged and all that sort of stuff. Not necessarily true. Again, there are, of course, incidences of children on that medication who shouldn't be mm-hmm. but again there are there is a need for it and it does play a role and so i wouldn't dismiss medication as yeah. an option for anything without mm-hmm. exploring it as yeah. fully as i can and i wouldn't allow kind of our own preconceived ideas to kind of rule that out as an option it's, it can be a game changer in children who have a, a mental health problem that originates biologically so that the medication can help but for example, a child who's experiencing bullying and stuff like that, all the Prozac in the world is not going to make a difference if the bullying is still continued. Of course, you know, so, of course. so again, um, so yeah, it's focus complex. on the relationship first yeah. before we go down. Let's go with the relationship, like but I wouldn't rule anything mm-hmm. out. And I know I think it's too easy to go with the popular opinion of mm-hmm. CAMS is rubbish, medication is too bad. Yeah. Explore it, look yeah. into it. But fair play to you, by going to psychologists, GPs, PA the house, all these yeah. sorts of things, they're doing everything they can for their daughter, unfortunately. Our system isn't as responsive as it needs to be, but um, but they'll get there. Keep doing it and, and keep being available to her. And and any child who has a suicidal ideation deserves that to be explored as fully as possible. Oh, yeah. And and I think this family are doing that. So keep doing what you're doing, and and I wish you all the best. Okay, Colin, we're going to go uh, to the next question. So it says in the last week uh, of school, first year, my son with SEN in mainstream Aspergers. Uh, but with no support, was uh, sexually assaulted in school. Uh, the school have begun expulsion of another pupil, and the guardie are looking uh, at a juvenile liaison officer for him. Uh, we don't know how to ensure our son is protected in the coming years, and we have dealt with this in a very calm and measured way, even though our hearts are broken. We worry for his future, for the inevitable escalation in bullying. He's already had uh, disgusting messages from a, quote, friend, We dealt with that child's parents. Uh, We just want to know what we can ask for him. Should we try and find him an experience counseling now um, with things that are relatively calm? Our eyes have turned to September and we are worried sick for him. He loves school, he's an achiever. And they worry that this part of him has been affected. They say, I know most kids are grand, they're curious and act like teenagers do, but this cohort of quote professional bullies that concerns them most. Looking for any pointers that would look to would be appreciated. Uh, this is an isolating place to be. And they're saying that they can't even talk to their family. Though it would just be too much. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this serious. is first and foremost, this is a, an awful situation. And I don't know whether it's any consolation to say you're not on your own with this. The, and again, it's striking, Alison, the level yeah. of depravity in the bullying instances that we're seeing i think there is a quality in recent years that is that has escalated beyond yeah the age like i said to yeah. you before has as was quite shocking to me i found yeah. that, that I mean, reaction again are children getting older younger i think they are and there's an expectation of you know what are they seeing what is how what material is in their heads to feel that they can sexually assault appear or that mm-hmm. that's in any way Uh, appropriate or acceptable and it's not and that's the key issue here your child's ability to go to school and feel safe is not a luxury it is a basic human right and so from the first and foremost issue the environment has to be managed and the school are responsible for 
what happens in their under their watch. And so I would be increasingly I'd have a path worn to the school until this is resolved. Right. right? Start with the school. Absolutely. Okay. The origin here is the environmental stress. Now, she said he's special educational needs in ASD. There is an issue where children like that may have may have a higher risk of vulnerability towards bullying. They may not read social nuances in the same way. They may be seen as a target mm-hmm. uh, for for misbehavior or mistreatment or abuse in that way. And it's really difficult for all these parents who who know that their child is just trying to navigate the world, but they're getting such a hard time by it. And um, and children who are struggling with bullying issues, this is so much more pervasive than we would ever know. This family think they're on their own with this. They are not. This is this, this, and again, the extent of this is is exceptional. But from the point of view of the occurrence of something similar, many many people are struggling with this. Okay. And the issue here is. Do I go for a therapy for this or not? And do I need intervention? If there's any sort of signs of trauma, and there may indeed be for an incident of this level of, mm-hmm. of escalation, that that may be, they may indeed need support around that. However, therapy in a case where the environmental stressor is still happening can be almost like pouring water into a leaking bucket, you know, from the point of view of. If I go to therapy for an hour and then I go back into school and I'm bullied for seven or eight hours that week, it places a lot of pressure on therapy to try and maintain my self-worth, self-belief and self-value. And in in actual fact, they're the sustaining things that are really important through a bullying experience is keeping the self-worth, self-value and self-belief intact to some degree, despite it being eroded by these experiences so the the school needs to do that again i always say you know finding your tribe whether it be outside school something that makes you feel good about yourself mm-hmm. you know in life there is a there's a i use the metaphor of there's bad experiences and good experiences and the, if we take the bad experience to be like cordial or you know kiora or mm-hmm. maiwadi and the good experiences being the water we, once we we much focus on trying to get rid of the bad experiences. How do we get rid of the the bitterness from the, you get rid of it by adding in water, you know, by adding in more good experiences and where there is issues of bullying and trauma and things like that. We can't undo what we have experienced, but we can have a corrective emotional experience going forward. And so this lads, although he's dreading September and understandably so what he's been through, you need to make where he goes in September to be as safe as possible. Yeah. And as a role of his parents, you have a role to advocate for him. And as a role of teachers and facilitators of that environment, they need to do what they can do to maintain his safety there. Right. Um, and I interested they talk about being measured and things. But, um, you know, of course, my first reaction is, you know, take him away, get mm-hmm. him out. You know, what, you know, what is a measured approach? I mean, how do you do? Do you remove the child immediately or do you? Again, the the, the issue being. I mean, maybe there, and, and again, this is this contentious, and I want to preface this by saying I, I'm not victim shaming in any way, but there there used to be a term, I don't think we use it anymore, of a provocative victim, mm-hmm. right? So a child who just doesn't read social situations and finds themselves being vulnerable when it comes to that. You know, moving from school to school without having a successful address of that mm-hmm. can feel like a, a continuous series right. of failures. Do you know what I mean? So they go from one situation and then they have a similar experience in the next and similar experience in the next. Where it can be or where there is a possibility for it to be resolved in the position where it's in, 
there's a lot more that that will do for his self-worth, self-value and self-belief. So I had a bad first and second year, third, fourth, fifth and sixth. Right. I really turned it around or, or the school turned okay. it around for me or I was able to, to manage that. But how long do you stick at that? At what yeah. level of yeah. bullying or exposure do you feel? How much is too much? And again, I would say to you, that comes down to the discretion of the parent, discretion sure. of the child and, and their yeah. experience and response to it. This is a fairly high grade incident that, of course, moving schools might be something that this family have considered. But for me, you know, you can be going from the frying pan to the fire. And again, uh, this is it's something that I don't think is the complete solution. The solution right. is resolve the issue. Ideally, let's resolve it in the school. So the school environment becomes less threatening for him. Your boy thrives in it and it's fine. And the, the teachers do their job and their peers come around and change occurs. Second of all is, you know, that doesn't happen and you move to a different school and it's brilliant and it goes right. well in the other place. The other option is it doesn't improve. Nobody does anything about it. And you move to another school and the same thing happens yeah. and you move to another school and the same thing happens. And I think that's perhaps more risky in terms of their long-term self-value, self-worth and self-belief. The most important thing here is try and control the variables that you can control, which is the environment pieces around how your boy is seen within this school and how he's managed. His internal variables is about being optimistic, but being realistic that whatever happens, we'll manage it and that you're not promising that everything's going to be perfect in right. September, but that you're on it and people are very aware of it. You're now. doing something. And everybody's, everyone's tuned in, parents, teachers, everyone else. Yeah. But most importantly, keep his self-belief, self-worth and self-esteem intact, whether that's if he finds his triumph outside of school, if he's part of a club or if he does something that. And again, this is one of the, the costs of the indoor camps this year, you know, kids mm. who are maybe not traditionally sporty, but maybe have found their tribe in, in chess or drama or, you know, programming or whatever it might be. Um, there has been a real loss of that for those of children course. to find their their tribe and, and school environments are very narrow the normative is very singular and yeah. if you're in it you're in it and if you're out you're out yeah. and i've mentioned that a number of times but for him if he has experiences that make him feel good about himself just keep adding in the water you know as opposed to trying to to extract the bitterness yeah. of what has happened but where we where we see the the these escalations of high levels of violence and yeah. aggressive aggressive behavior in children you know, um, I think Michelle Obama's family famously says, if you you can see it, you can be it. Right. Uh, and we have to question what level of exposure children are having if they're open to yeah. considering that these sorts of uh, responses to whatever rage they're feeling or angst that they're feeling is is inappropriate or, or an option of a response. And that's not good. Um, yeah, this question so, brought up both sides, you know, yeah. like there's the victim and then also... And the perpetrator. And the perpetrator. And I'm mm, just like, mm. what made that child... Mm do that and again one of the complexities of being a, a mental health worker or a psychotherapist is that you treat both right you know right, I've, I've had the perpetrator in the room and i've had the, the victim in the room and so there are oftentimes reasons for both behaviors or explanations for them or and they're not excuses no. but there may indeed be explanations and uh and again maybe some investment in trying to rearrange that child's view of the world might be no harm either and maybe mm -hmm. as i said that the school or the judicial system have a role in trying to, to help them with that so that that doesn't continue into adulthood. Okay. But a very, very difficult situation and I wish them well. So um, do what you can to prepare the environment, do what you can to, to realistically uh, build up your son and try and find that tribe for him. Um, but remember, feeling safe in school is not a luxury, it's a human right.
and the adults in the room have a responsibility to ensure that. Okay, we're going to go on. Yep. All right. So this says, our three-year-old son is very happy, bright, and sociable boy. He seems to be enjoying being around other children and loves joining in in fun and spots fun at any time. He seems to love copying others, even his younger sister, nearly two, when she's playing with a toy or invents a new game. I know imitation is part of development, but on a few occasions, the imitation of bad, negative, not ideal behavior. Now, I hate to think that I would ever become the parent who says my child wouldn't do X or a parent who would blame another child for our son's behavior. Obviously, we know him inside out and can see the imitation or copying is fairly common. Recently in crush, we've been told uh, by the crush worker that he has not been listening or in other words, copying a child. We've tried to explain to him that it is important to listen and when he is asked to stop doing something, uh, that this has worked on some days, but not others. We also saw this imitation come out again when we visited friends with kids lots of times throughout the day. We saw a child throw or kick or act out and our son immediately imitated the behavior. The most worrying of these came when a small, with a small pet that they owned. Their child was rough with the pet and hit and our son copied. My son had witnessed the other boy when the child was going to touch the animal that he reiterated gentle, gentle to our son. And yet he still hit the pet. Uh, I'm sure on these occasions aren't defining moments in our son's life, but the tendency to copy makes me wonder if we as parents need to instill more independent attitude in our son. Yet he's only three. How do we begin? He will be he will be around boisterous children all the way through his schooling. So how do we support him correctly without focusing on uh, how the other children behave? Okay. And again, a, a very interesting part of this, and I would open it with this child is three. Mm -hmm. So the first thing and foremost is to what degree of control or influence or even understanding do they have over their own behavior? And my guess is, is very little. There's a great line that Jacques Lacan, the psychoanalyst, says that he says, as soon as you utter your first word, you become, you cease being yourself. So every behavior that we have, every word that we use is borrowed. Okay. Right? So when we describe ourselves as happy and sad, these are notions and concepts that we've gotten from somebody else. Okay. So he, he describes we become alienated by language. Right. Yeah. And so imitation copying is part of life. You know, we see selection of life experiences and we we try and select the ones that we like or admire and say well i'm gonna that's gonna be me and if you can imagine our personalities being like almost like a velcro thing that we stick on these patches of things that we like and through time that might we grow tired of that and we change it and identities change and all that sort of stuff so it's a fluid concept okay however the more enduring elements of our personality are things like our temperament which might be things like if we are explosive fiery quiet, uh, meek, shy, removed, these things tend to stay with us a little bit longer uh, than just personality variables or behaviors or traits or characteristics. So the issue here is, is what is his temperament like, you know, and trying to work a little bit with his temperament more so than with his, his behavior. So the idea here is maybe he thrives on acceptance or visibility, and he's looking for that in the best way possible. And he sees the children who misbehave as getting the highest level of validation. So he's learning very understandably that if I copy or mimic this, then I achieve the same result that that person got, or whatever the case may be. And it may indeed be, again, a case of him just being, making ill judgment around yeah. what it is. And we do catch children being bad easier than we catch them being good. So the, 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 the bold child or the naughty child or the misbehaving child will get more attention than those who are, are 
kind of just going along with it. Um, and he's maybe cottoning on to something around this. The issues around, you know, being cruel to the animal and things like that, that is something that I would have uh, a real worry about in the sense of his development of, of social and emotional conscience, you know, in terms of, you know, you may not know that when you take something from somebody else, it hurts them, mm. but you still have to try and learn that. So you still try and teach it, mm. even though they may not get it until they're seven, mm -hmm. that that's the case. It doesn't mean you don't teach it till seven. You still continue to sell the, the morality, the cultures, the core beliefs that you believe your child should adopt. And you try and role model those and you try and uh, reward them and you try and, uh, you know, sanction the ones that you don't want and that's absolutely okay that's how you approach it as opposed to expecting him to master it is different yeah, Do you know what I mean? yeah. so this is a process that will take perhaps the next three years to for him to really gather a grasp of and what you do in the next three years will have an important role in kind of shaping and forming and cultivating his view of of the world and empathy and sympathy and mm -hmm. compassion and competitiveness but it's in many ways to try and assume that he will get it straight off and get it at this point is ambitious. So I would be a little bit patient about the outcome, but I would be maybe he needs more intervention around empathy, cultural values, you know, uh, core value systems than perhaps a child who isn't behaving that way. Does right. that make sense? So it's not that you you actually have to invest more time in developing the parts of his temperament or personality that have not yet seemed to be developed and but don't expect them to be developed at no. this point does that make sense well, yeah well I've seen mm. it with with my daughter um I noticed you know she if we're playing with a friend you know we're going to the playground where we just see them right away she'd be a little shy kind of so she'll stay close to mom and then once we get warmed up um you know she'll start playing and then I've noticed that she does you know mimic the behavior that you know like, oh we're going to do this game and she'll okay we'll do that game mm. and she'll kind of just go along go along go along and I think it's just easier it mm. seems like it's comfortable for her mm. you know she's just she's enjoying herself and sometimes I'll say you know maybe in the car I'll say oh you know did you talk to so-and-so about the new dinosaur or whatever you got or the mm. new thing no 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 you know it's something that she would be interested in she wouldn't necessarily bring that to the table right away mm. and I and I that would worry me I thought oh is she not You've got cool stuff too. Do you mm. want to talk about what you want to do? Or you, you've got a nice game. You, do you want to bring the table? She wouldn't be the first one to do that. But later on, I, I, I would see her kind of, oh, here, let's do this or mm. let's do this. Yeah. And again, that dynamic of the leader and the follower right, or right. the dominant and the passive. Friendships. And you freak out as very like, mm. well, I, <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't want my child to be the bossy child either. No, no, you, know? but you don't want to be the like, mm. yeah. and so, jump off this cliff here. Again, you're trying to shape a degree of. <laughs> self-worth and self-value that, sure. that, that that they can own it and say well, actually I can chip in here as well or yeah. you need to listen to what yeah. I say but not the the bossy child may not have the self-belief and self-worth that, that they allude to have they mm. need that control in order to feel enough you know right. and so right. the child who who is self-sufficiently kind of following where she needs to but maybe going her own way when a game doesn't go where she wants it to go that's the ideal you want your child to yeah. be 
to, to not to be compliant or passive, but from the point of view of I'll take from this what I want, exactly. but I won't be ushered into making decisions that I feel uncomfortable with or that right. I don't feel. And again, that's an ideology and that's that's where that's aspirational. I don't think we sure. I think our dial flips from being we will probably be a little bit too bossy sometimes and get our wings slipped and then we'll become a little yeah. bit passive. But oftentimes in a friendship dynamic whether that that can get established quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So I'm the dominant one and you're the passive one. Right. And there's a great line, I don't know where it's from, that, you know, no flower grew in the shadow of a tree. And mm-hmm. so from the point of view of that can be something that you really want to watch if your right. child okay. is in a dominant passive relationship. Right. Right. Because, and it's probably more eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, it's like three or four, like they're just so no. little, like things change. At this literally. age, you're not expecting <laughs> yeah. that. But there you can see the... the grassroots of it maybe beginning if mm-hmm. they have a complacency to to just want to belong rather than you know yeah. or want to fit in rather than wanting to to have my voice heard and yeah. that can be a temperament issue and that's not necessarily a bad thing either but in the older age groups where you see that passive dominant it isn't always healthy and again your child can get used to not having their voice heard the other child can get very used to their only their voice being heard and expect that from other things. But at this age, this three-year-old mimicking behavior, it's unfortunate that he's picking up on the bad behaviors or the the, mm. the behaviors. But I'm wondering if that's about visibility, okay. if that's about that he sees that as getting seen. And I would absolutely continue to invest in trying to curtail his desire to be raucous or difficult and try and really teach those value systems along the way but I wouldn't be expecting him to grasp it or get it on, for another few years yet. Okay, because yeah, there is a sibling there <clears> as well, because that would be our balance, you know, with the only child, you know. Mm. I don't want to give her, do I give her too much praise? Then she'll be that kid who hears mm. it all the time. Or, yeah. Yeah, or if you don't give it enough, you know, she'll be seeking and, it. Like. And again, it's a, <laughs> the, the, the whole idea of pacing. You You're know? amazing, but not that great. Yeah, and again, it's it's trying to keep that dial yeah. from getting too much. You know? And again, we go back to four to seven. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about your child having enough self-worth and self-value yeah. to being self-contained without having to be, you know, and like there was a great uh, question I got asked a number of years ago, said, how can I teach my child to have good self-esteem without being a brat? Yeah, it was a really great, yeah, it is a great good question around, you know, that social conscience around, I don't need to impose myself on other people. I don't have to have expectations that I, my voice is heard all the time, yeah. but I do have to have enough belief in my own voice and my own opinion to believe it has deserves to be heard some of the time okay. you know okay. and it was about you know it is about effort rather than outcome mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. from the point of view of you reward people for trying you reward people for putting in effort you reward and it's not about outcome because mm-hmm. if it's all about outcome and you're the prettiest and you're the best herder yeah. and you're the this and you're the that then that be, those become the currency mm-hmm. for value you know um so yeah I, again tricky but aspirational to try and keep the, the dial in the middle okay. you know uh and if you, you've noticed you've praised your child 17 times in the last hour, maybe tone it down a little bit. But if you're, you know, um, if, if you're under praising for fear of making them soft or something like that, that's yeah. not good either. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Call you later. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So we're going to move on. It says, um, I'm very worried about my lovely, wonderful, kind, bright 16 year old daughter. She's in third year and she's found it difficult going back to school a few weeks ago after lockdown, she enjoyed being home in the freedom of doing homework in her own time and going for walks by herself and coffee and sleeping in. She dreaded going back as I think it drains her. She did miss her friends and being with her friends. And I've noticed of late, she has lost interest in reading what she loved. 
She does not read at all now. She devotes nearly all of her spare time on the phone or laptop watching Netflix. Uh, she is a bright student, but does the bare minimum with homework and hardly any study. She has continuous assessment exams these weeks. I've noticed since return to school, she barely eats breakfast or her tea late in the evening. Her appetite is not what it used to be. She is not hungry. She says she eats much better at weekends. Uh, she has admitted after a talk uh, this evening that she feels a bit sad, lost interest in eating and studying homework and reading. She does eat, but not the appetite she had. A lot of the above has occurred since returning to school and nothing has happened, but she prefers to be at home and she says she overthinks everything at school, worries a lot about every class. She has lovely friends and has enjoyed meeting up with them since restrictions lifted. She goes on to say her sleep is not good either these weeks, but to be fair, she is never a great sleeper. She is not sleeping well these weeks. She finds it hard to sleep at night. Her phone is not in her room at nighttime. This is only restriction I have on the phone. We have a constant discussion about the phone as I believe phone is where a lot of the attention is going and I'm blaming myself for not restricting it more. Lockdown has certainly not helped the situation uh, as we are always on the go. She was meeting with her friends, going to town, meeting with our families, going to discos and everything stopped. She herself is blaming lockdown. She has assured me and I believe that she's in no way being bullied or anyone is being unkind to her. Um, she has a 14 year old brother and she is very good and kind to him please advise in which direction we should go. This is a similar and familiar story of recent times. Again, it's kind of that the adjustment to, as I say, we, we spoke about it at the start, about the lack of momentum, you know, this gear change from, mm -hmm. from being busy and engaged in the world to being on your own, to being back in, to being on your own. And the controls of our lives at the moment seem to be in the hands of other people, right? So they're in the hands of... Of uh, the government, of the surges of the virus, of you know um, our parents, I suppose in some respects, and many young people are describing this kind of lack of controllable variables in their lives. They feel completely overwhelmed and at the mercy of you have to be social now, and now you have to be unsocial. Mm -hmm. You have to be outside and mix with everyone. Now you have to come back in. Many children will struggle with those transitions and will find those transitions difficult. And that's quite understandable and normative. And I think not necessarily just isolated to children. I think as adults, we mm -hmm. can find you know, re-socializing difficult when we haven't done it for a while. And then obviously stopping socializing when we're right. that way inclined, it, it can be difficult too. So what we tend to do is we try to gain control over something in our lives. Or if we become, like when you become low motivation, disinterested, Food can be something that can be used to comfort eat, so we eat more, uh, or we can lose interest in food, almost in a kind of a depressive way that it doesn't bring us the same joy, and so we don't tend to, to kind of think about it as something to be celebrated in that way. Um, but in many ways, we can develop disordered eating. Right? And what I mean disordered eating is not the same as an eating disorder, right? So from the disordered eating is almost like... Um, our patterns, our rhythm, again, kind of gets yeah. knocked out of sync and, and we just don't think about food or, or else we can kind of think, if I can control what I eat, it gives me a sense of control over something when everything else in my life I don't feel I have control over. So if by saying, well, I'm not going to eat my lunch now, I'll have it later, even though that might seem like a very innocuous thing to happen or do, it might feel a little bit, again, when we heard about the pandemic first and we all legged it out and bought bales of toilet roll and put them in the downstairs bathroom, right? It made us feel better, 
temporarily for a few moments that we had stocks of right. toilet roll for yeah. a respiratory illness. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. um, but it soon wore off mm-hmm. and that wasn't the answer. But we felt if we had something to hold on to, it feels better. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and much like when we're at sea, you can hold on to something that even doesn't float or doesn't assist you to float. It feels a little bit better to have some sort of a prop to okay. hold on to. If you're very anxious in a room and you get to carry a folder in, it can sometimes make you feel less anxious than, of course. you know, yeah. nothing, yeah. right? Yeah. So these are kind of their props, their like props yeah. in many ways to try and kind of get us through or manage a great time of flux or dynamic or something like that. And so in this way, that's what that could be. But like anything, these things have a potential to become a bigger problem, right? So when we start to over-rely on the controllable variables to, to survive, to get through, to get through the day, and the crutch then becomes the problem. Do you know what I mean? So from the point of view, something that was initially assistive, you know, uh, and we can see this through, you know, I like to have two cans of beer before I go to sleep because it helps me sleep, or I like to have three cans if I'm going out because it helps me be more social. But then we find ourselves having a bottle of brandy with our cornflakes in the morning and it's a problem. Do you know what I mean? So from the point of view, it starts out as something, yeah. you know, we don't become alcoholics overnight. You don't no. wake up one. We don't become drug addicts. We don't become gambling addicts and we don't have eating disorders overnight. These are things that are developed over time. Right. And so any of these sort of red flag behaviors could be indica- indicative of somebody just trying to cope and get through something or evolve into something different. And that's why it's so important to keep an eye on this. Um, I would be trying to, I mean, this seems to be a response to a life problem. Right. Right. So the life problem is the, the socializing, the mixing with friends and the rhythm and getting some sort of traction on that. My answer to this is, is invest in life, not in the problem. So the eating issues may be a signpost to her unhappiness. It's not the source of her unhappiness. The source of her unhappiness seems to be with friends and relationships and going out and right. finding an appetite for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, more the more you do it, the more of an appetite you will get for that. So it's okay. encouraging her to to not avoid and to take on tasks. And you know, we oftentimes say, "When I feel better, I'll do something different." But when you do something different, you feel better. And so, going to do the things that she doesn't feel, and supporting her to do it, encouraging her to do it, rather than nagging her to okay. do it, um, because what you'll do is you'll create another form of pressure. And that's not how she she needs to hear this in some way. So support her to get back into life, do that, but keep an eye on that eating I'm issue. Eating. Okay. Uh, just that that is, um, if if you have uh, if you're driving your car and you're running out of petrol, the dial on the dashboard goes into the red and it shows you that you're low on petrol. Right, the dial is a signpost to the petrol problem. The dial is not the problem. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, so it does. The eating issue is, is the dial but the unhappiness is the petrol tank, right? So you can tap the, the dial all day and go, so why is this not working and try and you know, move the dial up, but it's not going to make any difference because the issue is elsewhere. And okay. the eating problem is the dashboard okay. to her emotional, where, she, where she's at at the moment. And that may well improve itself in time, um, but it may not. And it's about trying to make sure that she doesn't over rely on food as a coping strategy. Okay. Okay, so monitoring that, yeah. that aspect of that. Okay, so again, we're moving on some similar themes. It says, my daughter who has just turned 15 is struggling. She's been having panic, panic attacks, which I have been trying to help her with using your advice of not adding fuel to the thoughts, etc. Since schools reopened after Easter, she has started into a pattern of disordered distress eating, as you mentioned. Um, I have just listened back to your hugely helpful chat with Dr. Mally Coyne and related your connection between this and previous anxiety. I have had a few chats with my daughter. She's starting to open up about how she's feeling as we are quite close 
uh, she's happy to allow herself to sit and eat our main family meal together at lunchtime, uh, but will not eat before or after this. I have spoken to her about recognizing how she feels after she has eaten and says she understands how she feels better when her energy levels are up. But she said sad voices in her head are making her feel guilty about eating at any other time. I have suggested that she helps me with the family meal planning and we prepare meals together to see if that helps. Uh, I am so sad to see her struggling like this and really would uh, like some advice on what to do to help her. Okay, now this is similar to the last one, but a little bit different. The idea of the kind of sad voices in her head mm-hmm. would suggest mm-hmm. that the, there's the, the eating disorder is the presence of the other. So right. it's, it's that, that voice that says you can't have that, you shouldn't have that, don't eat that. Don't, and so it becomes a kind of a, a life coach in your own head. Right. And it tells you, you, you know, whatever the issue you're having around your worries. So say you had a sad morning or something, this voice in your head says, do you know what will fix that? This is how to manage it. Okay. Don't eat your tea okay. right? and you'll feel okay. better. So you don't eat your tea and then the voice in your head goes, well done, you're super, you're amazing, you're so strong, you're so this and so. And when you're craving that, that's really good. And it feels really, really, really validating in that way. And then you have something that, and you, when you go against the rule, it says you're weak and you're useless and you're this and you're that. So when, what you're doing is you're complying with the voice in order to get the praise and to avoid the persecution, right? Mm -hmm. Where the problem is in eating disorder is where we mistake the absence of persecution as the presence of happiness. Okay, so if I do everything the voice says, well, then I don't get persecuted. So I'll keep doing that, mm. which is like a domestically violent relationship. If you do as your domestically violent partner says, he won't beat you up, right? Mm. But not being beaten up is not the same as being happy. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's not a solution. So, so the issue is that you comply is just easier than to go against it. And anorexia and eating disorder is vicious when it doesn't, when you don't comply. So you just get into a habit of, maybe anorexia said to this child, you can have one meal a day, but that's it, right? So mom is trying to encourage her to do all these other things, but if she does the other things, then she's going to face the wrath of the eating disorder. So she's able to, but what'll happen over time is anorexia will say, well, you can't have that meal anymore, or you have to have half a meal, or you, because it's never enough. There'll never be a point where eating disorder says, I'm happy with you now. It'll constantly keep going. So the issue here is for her to, to encourage her to eat outside of the meal times, but support her outside of that time. So if you're going to have a snack in the morning, let's have the snack and let's do something else afterwards. Let's try and, you know, keep keep the, the the persecutory voice at bay. Okay, can you talk about some of those? Like, how would you support that child? So you're saying, okay, we're going to eat this. So we're going to go like say for the, the one meal a day she's yeah. having is is the lunch, the lunchtime, whatever. So let's say we're going to have lunch, but we're going to have a snack at four o'clock. Right, okay. and when you have the snack at four to quarter past four, we're going to go to the park, or we're going to do something, or okay. we're going to watch this thing, or we're going to do something. So I'm not going to allow the eating sort of dominate you after that. So, okay. so if, okay. if there's going to be something unpleasant, I'm going to try and... Fill so that time after. A bit like, okay. you know, when you're going to, the child going to the dentist and you say, well, we'll go to Smith's on the way home. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's something that will get you out of the, the kind of... The, the headspace. The, the headspace. Um, and encouraging her that you are there for her in the time when she's going through the persecutory piece, okay. as opposed to just saying, all I want you to do is eat. Yeah. 
because eating sort of saying all I want you to do is not eat yeah. and you're just saying well all I want you to do is eat and that just becomes exactly. a battle of confusion whereas you're saying I understand it must be difficult for you to I want to support you with the distress of eating okay as opposed to I want you to eat okay. does that make sense because yeah again the demand is not to restore weight and to get heavy and to you know which is what eating disorder is telling you that all they want you to do is be fat that's mm. what eating disorder is telling you all the time and when you don't acknowledge that and just try and get them to eat it sounds like you're fulfilling the prophecy of the eating disorder which okay. mean, whereas you're saying i want you to be able to eat without being tormented or tortured afterwards mm-hmm. and i'm going to help you with filling that that bit yeah you know i'm going to help i'm going to be the other voice in your head so when the eating disorder says you broke the rules you did bad you're useless you're weak and you're this you have another person in that moment saying you're amazing and you're strong and you're brilliant and right. so what you're doing is you're trying to almost nullify or counteract the control that the eating disorder has okay. over her. So sense? that's what we're asking the parent to do now. Would you advise that this person go and talk to their GP? Or yes, go I think at this point, there's when the, when you okay. have the presence of that voice in your head or there's somebody okay. telling her the sad thoughts or whatever that might be, that's starting to be established. Okay. Uh, and so, yes, I would be getting some external support around this. But in the meantime, that's what I'd be doing this moment. Excellent. Okay, we have our final Great, yeah. final question here. Okay, it says, uh, my 12-year-old has a diagnosis of rumination syndrome that he received 12 months ago. He had 10 sessions over eight months of CBT provided by the HSC, and that was it. I despair. Is there any advice you can give me on how to support my child? Now, I'm going to let you explain yeah. what that is. Rumination me. syndrome is something that it's not what it says on the tin in some respects. It's um, it's also known, known as rumination disorder, and it's a feeding and eating disorder of which undigested food comes back up from the person's stomach uh, and in their mouth and regurgitation. So oftentimes these young people will get into vomiting after meals or, or spitting back out food or whatever the case may be. And when it's back in their mouth, they may chew and swallow it again or spit it out. It's a really distressing condition, right? Um, and the... The idea is that it is obviously psychological in origin, right? Okay. And so okay. it'd be similar to something like um, cyclical vomiting syndrome or some of those things that they're kind of called the migraine of the tummy, right? Okay. So from the point of view of they have a physical basis and an anatomical basis yeah. in that you do, your tummy, tummy does throw up the food, but it may have a psychological origin, right? Okay. So the issue around... Uh, you know, migraine might be related to stress or, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, there's no doubt when it hits, it hits and you're in a lot of pain. But there are lifestyle choices in which we can make to try and alleviate that okay. or to try and manage okay. that. And so the CBT, which again is cognitive behavioral therapy, would have been around trying to find ways of managing anxiety and trying to manage your your ruminations because it was. And again, I always use the idea of blushing as the, the definitive that our bodies and minds are connected. So when you're embarrassed, your face goes red. Embarrassment is an emotion, face going red is a physical reaction. Yeah. And if somebody says, you're going red, oh my God, you're going red. And you go, oh my God, I'm going red. Yeah. You get redder and redder. And redder. Yeah. So the issue is you can't maybe stop being embarrassed and you can't your, stop your body reacting in that way, but you can stop it getting redder right. by not fueling it with those worries of, oh my God, I'm going I'm okay. getting red. So the issue around this is and maybe where the cognitive behavioral therapy is about trying to adjust you from getting 
to adding the anxiety into an already anxiety situation and making the regurgitation worse. Um, there are things that you can do physiologically to help. And one of those is to lie on your back in a flat surface with your knees bent and your head supported. So you can use a pillow uh, or your knees to support your legs, placing one hand on your upper chest and the other below the rib cage because it's believed to be kind of a diaphragmatic breathing element. Um, it will allow you to, to feel your diagram or diaphragm as you breathe. If you breathe slowly through your nose so that your stomach moves out against your hand, keep your hand on your chest as still as possible. But for children, maybe describe it as breathing like an opera singer. You know, yeah. you're kind of going up like that. And with the hand on the belly moving out and slow each breath and moving with exhalation. So what you're just trying to tune into that breathing and kind of regulate it again back into rhythm, the, yeah. getting that yeah, kind of cycle. Tighten your stomach muscles, letting them fall inwards as you exhale through pursed lips and keep the hand on your upper chest as still as possible. That's a kind of a physiological thing. So that might be saying when you get, when you get embarrassed and your yeah. face is going red, yeah. you know what I mean? The psychological thing is don't think of something that's making you go red, but yeah. maybe avert your gaze, look at something else, you know, try and address. In many ways, in anxiety, one of the, the, the main things you do is try and get out of your own head. Right? Yes. So when anxiety is starting to panic, you're yeah. starting to get up into this thing. There's a very useful technique that I have used for multiple times throughout my career with people that I've used it myself. So when you're getting into that stage, and the floodgate is open and all the thoughts are coming in going, you're going red, oh my God, you're getting panic attack. Oh my God, you're going to collapse. You're going to die. You're going to get sick. Yeah. You're going to... There's a thing called five, four, three, two, one, right? And the five, four, three, two, one is very simple. So name five things in this room that are white. And we might go that desk, the wall, yeah. the skirting board, the plug and my me, face. Right? <laughs> <laughs> name four things in the room that open. Okay, okay, so the door, the press, the cupboard, the whatever, name three things in the room that are electric. Okay, the computer, the fan, and something else. Name two things in the room that breathe, me and you. Okay. And name one thing in the room that you can see through, and that could be the window. Okay. okay. In the time it takes you to answer those questions, you've broken the cycle of panic, right? Well, my so, mind has shifted to so all these different things. Get a cue yeah. card, get it in your phone, put it in your notes. One, two, three, four, five. And when you're getting into that moment, take out the five, four, three, two, one. Do it. Yeah. Wherever you are, just take the time. You've already, it's a circuit breaker. Yeah. You just cut the circuit of panic and you've allowed it. Now, you may need to do that a few times and get back to it. But in that moment of panic, it is a useful strategy to try and just okay. get out of your own head. And again, strategies like breathing, like mindfulness, like progressive relaxation, sometimes they work very well in preparation for or prophylactically but when you're in the panic the five four three two one would be my favorite one in order to just get out of your own head i think yeah yeah i mean and that's not just for children with rumination syndrome or anything like it It can be used for all of us that's in many excellent. ways to try and get out of our own heads yeah. because sometimes we can't run away from ourselves and we can't hide from ourselves but we can distract ourselves and we can be sneaky about distracting our own thoughts yeah. and that's just one strategy that i would suggest works well that's a good one. I'm sorry, just one other point to that one. Um, they mentioned that they've had the CBT therapy um, and they've had, it sounds like eight months um, mm. and that's it. Um, would you suggest continuing or how would they, you know, yeah, again, just, again, we're talking about fit here maybe. And again, probably through, you know, public health system gives you a section or a, okay? an amount or a quota of sessions and, you know, you okay. do well in that or not. Um if you need more than eight sessions, you need more than eight sessions. And, yeah, you know, from the point of view of, um, you know, performing 
whether you can access that privately, I know not ideal for everyone and financially it can be very pressured and things like that. Um, but from the point of view of uh, going back and, and maybe requesting more or a re-engagement of it, um, because, you know, again, going back to my original point about mental yeah. health problems, in the absence of the diagnostic definitive, we don't know. My depression might be very mild and might well be managed in eight sessions, whereas yours might be considerably more complex and might take 80 sessions for yeah. that. And so we can't, you know, it's not like take the antibiotic for five days and the for infection sure. will go on. Yeah. And so uh, we try and create these care packages that give some sort of uniformity to well, if you've got that, you've got this. And I also, sometimes it's like almost insurance costs. You know, if you get whiplash, you get 15,000. Yeah. If you lose a finger, you get 10,000. You know, the sort of like, that, yeah. uh, and exactly yeah, who yeah. decides that. And mm -hmm. so from the point of view of how important is your finger to you, you know, from the point of view of I'm a concert pianist, yeah, well, then losing my little finger will be a lot more than perhaps somebody who doesn't do that for a living or whatever it might be. Yeah. And so um, there isn't a subjectivity to it. And so eight sessions and blanket of saying that will cover most people. Uh, just isn't good enough from that point of view because and oftentimes when you start in some sort of therapy process you pick scabs and you find out that you know we oftentimes say in the trade you never say oh that looks fairly simple um, because it's almost like a jinx Famous because words, yeah. uh, it turns okay. out that very few are um, okay. so yeah so that that would be okay. my view on that one yeah a lot of a lot of good tips i mean all these parents everyone's doing an amazing job mm. um but i liked your five four three two one you had some good tidbits today yeah and i think it's it, these are there's really heavy duty stuff in there today very there's heavy today of, yeah. yeah uh really serious pathology and lots of really struggles at home and and that's that's that is representative of where a lot of people are at the moment mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. the explosion of mental health problems uh post probably January, February of this year has yeah. been something that is fairly um, unprecedented, if that word can be used. Um, but um, know that a lot of people who are, who are calling in and like many people who email me, you're doing everything you can and you're doing okay. And uh, these are problems that just take time to improve. Right. Um, and oftentimes kind of getting in touch with the podcast, oftentimes what I'm saying is you're, you're doing what you can, keep doing it uh, with a little bit of extra perhaps direction around that or focus on it. Um, but if you have any other questions, you can get them in touch to us on askingforaparent at gmail.com or you can get us through the Twitter, Instagram or Facebook pages. Uh, and we'll be back in four weeks again for another monthly listeners questions episode. Uh, I'd like to thank Alison Kaspersky for her time, energy uh, and wonderful articulation of those questions for me today. And uh, I hope you got something out of the answers. But uh, yeah, so we will see you back here in a month's time. But until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now.